Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. This WBEZ podcast is supported by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Suicide is a topic that hides in the shadows. It's time we talk away the dark, learn how to spot the warning signs for suicide, and how you can have an open, caring, real conversation to help save lives. Visit the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention to watch the new short film and learn more at AFSP.org slash talkawaythedark. Hi, I'm Jen White, and this is Reset. When it comes to transportation around the city and the country, safety and environmental impact are major concerns. Chicago Tribune transportation columnist and Reset contributor Mary Wisniewski has explored both of these topics in the last couple of weeks, and she joins me now to break down the latest Chicago transportation news and how some commercial airlines are offering environmentally friendly ways to fly. Hey, Mary, welcome back. Thanks for having me, Jen. So let's start with the story you're reporting today, that the CTA is testing a plan to allow riders to board at the back of buses. Tell us about what, what this plan is. Sure. Well, if you've ridden on a busy CTA bus route and you know the problem, where if there's a long queue of people waiting to get on that bus, people looking for change, people trying to remember where they put their venture cards, and it can take a long time and it can contribute to the bus delays that cause bus munching. And so what the CTA is going to try starting in June, so it's going to be a while, is on two busy routes, the Jeffrey Jump and then there's the 192 University of Chicago Express buses. They're going to try putting card readers at the back doors so that you can either enter from the front or you can enter from the back using your Ventra card. Uh, If you're paying cash, you still have to go on the front. And they're hoping that that's going to speed up boarding. So is the thought to just have an impact on how quickly people get on the buses or is there some thinking around speeding up uh, buses moving through traffic as well? Well, it's it's getting people on the buses. Um, But this is part of a larger CTA plan to improve bus speeds, um, which what they're doing with that is creating more priority lanes, which you've already seen on Chicago Avenue, because ridership has declined by a lot, 25% since 2012. Uh, The CTA blames that partly on rideshare, and partly what's going on is that there's a lot more congestion on the streets, and so you're sitting there in a bus, and it's going like, you know, snails through peanut butter, and, you know, it's really, really frustrating. (laughs) There's an image, Mary, i got to (laughs) say. So um, so this is part of their overall strategy to make the bus more attractive. How has this worked in other cities? Because Chicago is a little behind the curve right. when it comes to having these, these back doors. Right. Other cities have been have tried the seat. The, San Francisco has it citywide. According to the CTA and according to transit experts I've talked to, it's worked well in other cities in, in, in increasing bus speeds. And there hasn't been a big problem with fare evasion. Um, San Francisco and some other cities like Toronto use something called fare inspectors where they have people randomly checking to make sure if you've paid your fare. What's the timeline for this pilot program? Um, It's going to be coming on sometime in June. We don't have a date yet, but if you ride those buses, you're going to start seeing those machines being installed, and it's going to be six months. So they're going to try this for six months, see how it works out, see if they're having... They don't expect a problem with fare evasion, but they're going to see how that works. And what they expect is that people are used to just paying their fare and getting on the bus, and that's what they'll do, rear door or front. I want to turn now to a column you wrote last week on safety tips 
rates for people who ride the L. And this comes after a string of high-profile incidents on CTA trains. Tell us about what's been happening. Sure. Um, well, we've had a, a problem with CTA crime. Um, uh, my colleague Joe Mar and I did an investigation last year that found that uh, serious crime has doubled between 2015 and 2018. The police and the CTA have admitted that there's a problem. Um, they are increasing the number of officers that are on the CTA. But in the meanwhile, people have to start taking care of themselves. And so I, I talked to uh, a former police officer and current police and CTA about some tips about staying safe. One of the big things is just be aware of your surroundings. You're on the CTA and you see people looking at their phones. They're like lost in space and they have their purses open. Sometimes I think, well, I should just take their wallet out of their purse and hand it to them mm-hmm. just to give them a lesson in what they're doing on the train. What about where you sit on the train? Does that matter at all? It does, because if you're sitting near the doors, it's much easier when uh, the train pulls into a stop for someone intent on taking your phone or taking your wallet to grab it and go. It's recommended that if you're sitting by a door, not to have your phone out because it's so easy for someone to just snatch that away from you. The other recommendation is that if you're riding a train late at night, if you can, sit in the front car. The CTA operator is not trained as a police person, so they can't help you that much, but criminals don't like there to be witnesses to what they're doing. If you are not carrying a purse, let's just say you have things in your pockets, any advice about where best to carry those items? Exactly. Don't carry your wallet in your back pocket. Um, You see that on the train all the time, too. Guys with their wallets hanging out of their pockets, just waiting for the Artful Dodger. Carry that in the front. Carry it in in an inner pocket in your jacket. If you are on a train and there's an emergency, what should people do? What should they avoid doing? One thing you can do is if you see something that's really a threat, you should call 911. Don't wait to try to get a hold of the CTA operator. Call 911 or send a tip to the CPD tip line. You can also wait and switch cars to do that if you're uncomfortable doing that while a criminal activity is happening in front of you. The uh, former police officer I talked to, Bob Angone, recommended if you don't feel like you can handle the situation, don't be a hero and try to stop a fight or try to stop something. Because if the person causing the problem is a lot bigger than you are, you could end up getting hurt as badly as the victim. And there are those emergency buttons on on the train. What happens if you hit one of those? If you hit one of those, if you're comfortable, you can talk to the CTA, um, the operator of the train, and that person has a direct connection and can notify the police. If you're not comfortable talking to that the operator while you're on the train. The protocol is is that at the next stop, the operator is supposed to get off the train and go back to the car where the person hit the button. And so that's another way you can you know be safe. If you, you can just hit the button and not say anything if you want to. Now, leaders of both the train operator and bus driver union say they, they need more resources right. to keep people safe. What are they proposing? Oh, well, one of the things that's being proposed is something that the CTA eliminated back in the 1990s, and that's bringing conductors back on the trains. The Trains used to have two people. It used to have the operator and the conductor who would walk through the train. The train driver, operators union, uh, Kenneth Franklin, recommended that there should be maybe conductors back or some kind of ambassadors. The CTA says, no, that's not going to happen. Is this a cost issue? It is a cost issue. The CTA was able to save millions of dollars by taking the conductors off the train. The other thing that the bus drivers union is recommending is to have maybe a, uh, some kind of strobe light on top of buses so that the bus drivers can hit it if there's an incident on the bus and then the police if they're nearby, they can see what's going on. There's also an idea about posting photos of people. 
people who are wanted for bus crimes? Right. Um, what Some of the buses right now have video screens at the front of them. And what the Bus Drivers Union President, uh, Keith Hill, has recommended is posting some of those vo- photos of people who are wanted for crimes on that video screen so that people can see who to watch out for. How are Chicago police and the CTA working on the safety issue? Uh, the Chicago police have told the Tribune that they're planning to add 50 more officers um, between March and uh, the Memorial Day weekend in order to improve safety. They're also saying they're working on a robust safety plan that's going to be putting more officers, more trained officers onto the trains. And we're waiting for more details of that plan to be revealed. Okay, now let's turn to another issue you recently covered, carbon offsets for commercial airlines for eco-conscious travelers. What exactly is a carbon offset? A carbon offset is a way of making up for the amount of carbon that you use, your carbon footprint when you're traveling. And when you're traveling on a a planes, contribute 2.5% of the carbon dioxide uh, that contributes to global warming into the air. It doesn't seem like a lot, but it's something that's growing. How much of a difference does it make if I'm taking a flight somewhere and I I purchase a carbon offset? It's just one passenger on a flight. Right. Well, it kind of depends on how how you look at it. And it also depends on where you get a carbon offset from. You can you can purchase them from some airlines. You can you know add eight bucks to your ticket, and it might go to planting trees. It might go to investing in clean energy projects somewhere in the world. And one of the professors that I talked to at University of Illinois, Don Webbles, was a little bit skeptical about the usefulness of planting trees to offset a flight because he says it's going to take 20, 30 years for a tree to be big enough. What might be a better idea is, for one thing, to reduce the amount of times you fly, though he says he's a bad example of that himself. The other thing to look at is using different fuels on planes, biofuels, which come from plants in the first place. Well, it seems like part of this is about how we as consumers are using airplanes, but then there's this larger question about the industry itself and how they're driving more eco-conscious travel. So how much, I mean, where's the balance here as a passenger? How much power do I really have to change this industry and and how it's contributing to global warming as opposed to the industry itself saying, hey, we've got to move in a different direction? I think that making airlines aware that this is something that you're concerned about as a consumer is is something that can't hurt. Because there are other things to do that can make planes more efficient. Having more people on the planes, changing the way they operate so that there are fewer stopovers can also contribute to putting less carbon dioxide into the air. Which commercial airlines are offering this right now? Uh, Well, uh, a number of them. You can look it up on their websites, but our local airline, uh, United Airlines, is doing it. Qantas, JetBlue, Air Canada. There's also travel apps that offer it. Hopper just recently announced that they're planting four trees for every flight and two trees for every hotel that you book on their uh, website. And roughly the cost, if we want to buy a carbon offset, is in that $8 range? It, It depends. Yeah, it depends on how long your flight is. Well, we'll talk to you again in a couple of weeks, but what other transportation stories are you keeping an eye on right now? Divi is supposed to be introduced to more south side and west side neighborhoods in the spring, so we're waiting to find out the dates of when that's going to happen, because that should start improving transit options for people in neighborhoods that have some challenges as far as getting around. That's Chicago Tribune transportation reporter and Reset contributor Mary Wisniewski. Mary, thanks. Thank you, Jen. 
For years, companies preferred settling their offices in the idyllic, spacious suburbs to the high cost and frenetic energy of the city. Think Kraft Heinz in Schaumburg or McDonald's 150-acre campus in Oak Brook. In the last several years, both those companies and others, including Motorola and farming supplier ADM, have ditched the burbs for fancier digs in Chicago. But now some suburbs with plenty of empty office spaces are strategizing on how to lure big companies away from the appeals of the city. Joining me now for more is Crane Chicago Business commercial real estate reporter Danny Eckerd. Hi, Danny. Hey, Jen. So remind us how how we got here where all these suburbs have tons of empty office spaces they're trying to fill. Yeah, so you just named a few great examples, right, of all this, this corporate migration from the suburbs downtown, a lot of that being driven by the pursuit of young talent. Um, the millennial generation has not moved to the suburbs uh, as soon as the previous generation. So there's this uh, large group of um, of young, talented people that uh, companies are coveting in a, in a tight labor market that wants to live and work in the city. So that's been driving a lot of this, this uh, demand downtown. Um, as a result, you've had a number of the companies that uh, were known for their big office campuses in the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s that have uprooted and left behind big, empty buildings. And there has not been a lot of positive leasing. I mean, for the past decade, there's not been a lot of leasing in the suburbs, new leasing that would give some of the owners of those buildings, those big with the big vacancies they need to fill, um, a lot of confidence to say, hey, let's upgrade our buildings and be able to recruit some new companies again uh, because they've been afraid to spend money because they're not sure they'd be able to recoup it by leasing space to companies. So that's starting to change in the last year or two where you're seeing more landlords say, you know what, let's actually put money into these. Let's amenitize these buildings, as they say, and make them a little bit more cool for millennial workers and companies today and see what we can do. And so it's starting to happen. Beyond trying to tap into the millennial workforce, were there other appeals the city offered that the suburbs just didn't have? Some of it is is you know new supply. I mean, there's been buildings that have been that have gone up that have really efficient floor plates. That's what companies are really focused on now: big open floor, uh, for, open floor plans that they can uh, um, cram more people into because it allows companies to save a little bit of money that way. Obviously, just the accessibility. You know, if you are downtown, people can get to you from wherever they live. Uh, if you're in the western suburbs and you're trying to recruit uh, employees that live in the northern suburbs, for example. That's a bit of a tough sell. So uh, there's a lot of you know reasons that uh, that, that companies have moved downtown, um, but now they're starting to find a few more to you know want to go maybe split their requirement and maybe have some space in the suburbs, some downtown. There's a lot of different factors in play there of, of why companies uh, are going to figure out where they're going to be officing for the next uh, ten years. Well, you have a piece out in Cranes that shows some office building owners, as you said, are giving their spaces. Uh, a facelift to, to yeah. try to lure companies back to the suburbs. Talk about the ways they're revamping these spaces to make them more attractive. Yeah, uh, boy, it, it touches a lot of different things. You talk to different landlords, and I, for this story, I talked to some of the architecture firms that they're that these landlords in the suburbs are hiring to try to figure out, hey, how do we make these grand, sprawling office campuses more appealing to young workers? And there's really a lot of attention to little details. So you talk to one firm, and there's a a firm that helped redesign the former Office Max headquarters out in Naperville. The one thing they pointed to, they said, we had to, you know, cut away a bunch of 
you know, overgrown trees and replant some landscaping because it just was too 90s. Um, a lot of it had to do with lighting. You know, they put 400 some LED bulbs in this giant light fixture in the middle of the building to try to make it a little more lively. It's all about sort of building a community, as they say, to make it feel like the suburbs are a little less lonely um, mm-hmm. and that you have a sense of, hey, there's other companies, there's a lot of activity here. Um, another thing that a lot of these uh, uh, updated buildings have now is, you know, this idea of having you walk into, you know, the main entrance of a building and and here's a grand stone security desk uh, that's very stately and that's gone. That's really being moved away. So you, you're greeted more. They want you to feel like it's more like a hotel. They're borrowing from the hospitality sector where they're putting right there, you know, more kind of lounge seating, um, some of the amenities that you would have in these office buildings like a coffee bar or a fitness center or a conferencing room front and center. So you walk in and you could feel the energy as they kept saying to you. I mean, it's like, it's a buzzword, but they, people kept talking about the energy. We need to create this energy. So the security desk is every sort of moved away. There's a lot of little things when it comes to kind of curating this experience that they want their tenants to have that have a lot more, you know, it's, it's a lot more than saying, Hey, let's make our 30 year old tenant lounge look like it's a reclaimed wood facade out of the West Loop. But it, but is that enough? I mean, are amenities like coffee bars and, you know, maybe a fitness center enough to compete with the city, which offers public transportation that's convenient for the most part, you know, a vibrant environment, tax incentives? Yeah. How do you compete with that? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a very tough thing to compete with. Um, that's why in 2017 and 2018, the suburbs lost two and a half million square feet of tenants. That's a lot. Um, that you know drove up vacancy and a lot of again companies moving downtown. We started to see last year actually it gained back a million square feet of tenants, and so there's you're starting to see companies prove that they will lease office space in the suburbs, especially when you look at how expensive it's gotten downtown with oh, so many companies coming downtown to work to have an office in the city. So uh, ten years ago, there's a great stat. Ten years ago. The premium for being downtown compared with the suburbs was about 49%. It was 49% more expensive to have an office downtown. Now it's 75%. So if you think about how much more expensive it is and if a company is going to say, well, do we really need to have all these back office employees, accounting employees, legal employees downtown where we're paying a you know a really, really big number in rent where maybe we can split it up and say, hey, let's have – uh, our tech workers and some of other people downtown, and we can have uh, large groups of people in the suburbs and split our, our our needs. That kind of thing is is giving a lot of these landlords reason to believe that yes, they can compete. Yes, they can can draw tenants back to their buildings. There's obstacles. I mean, the transportation one's a big one. That's why we're seeing pockets, certain pockets of the suburbs, do better than others. You know, Oakbrook is doing well. The area around O'Hare is doing very well. Um, there's a, a great example we, we mentioned in the story, President's Plaza, which is right off the Cumberland Blue Line stop. It's amazing. You look at the, the back and you know, the before and after photos, and they, it was just a very outdated building that had planters and trees in the atrium, and they took it all out, and now it looks like you know it's very this minimalist look with these lounge seating and, and a coffee bar that becomes a regular bar at 4 o'clock every day. And the rents they're getting now are like 25% more than they were just two years ago. Right. So there's there's actually demand for these these spaces, but it's about, you know, can these landlords justify it? Can they say, you know what, we're going to put money into it because we think we're going to get it back. And the question is, which are the, are, are the locations and the buildings that are actually going to do that as opposed to which ones maybe need to be say, you know what, we're going to we're going to cut our space in half. And we're going to repurpose it for some other use. You know, when we think of really large, sprawling campuses like McDonald's and Oak Brook, 30 acres, right? 
What does repurposing a space that large look like practically? Yeah, that's a, a good question. In fact, the uh, the group out of California uh, that bought that property fairly recently, they're starting to kind of share their ideas of how to repurpose it and update it. One thing that you hear from some of these firms is uh, that are redesigning some of these suburban office buildings uh, and campuses is that they really are trying to leverage their open spaces, right? I mean, that's one thing that you know, in, in one way, it's a it's a negative because you, if you're in the city, you have this great all the the street is the amenity, right? I mean, you have the access to all these great things around you, and you have to kind of create more of that when you're in the suburbs. Um, but you know, there are a lot of, especially in the '80s and '90s, some of these campuses that have just large open spaces, grand areas that uh, we're not really getting much use other than just being large areas, right? And so, some of these um, firms are trying to figure out ways to activate those spaces. So opening them up to the public, for example, and saying, we want to be part of this community. And hey, if you want to hold some social event here, we're going to open up our office building. It's just, it's not just for offices, not just for companies that are here. We need to find ways to get on the radar for people and just kind of create a feeling of busyness in some of these, uh, some of these areas. So, so yes, the large campuses, I mean, it's tough. I mean, look at the the former uh, Motorola campus in Schaumburg has been sort of broken up and they're redeveloping it into a top golf facility if i'm sure you're familiar with mm-hmm. that uh, concept and you've got some uh some other housing there i mean there's there's lots of different pieces to this grand plan and uh you know the question is is it going to be lucrative for the people that are backing it and that's uh what people are trying to start to, i guess get a sense of because if we if we see some good examples of yes these can be redeveloped into something new that also involves offices um, we might see more of those uh, those properties, you know, start to get revamped. So really quickly, for the owners of suburban office spaces who can afford to roll the dice, make these large investments into their space, they might be lucky. But what about the landlords who don't have seven figures to pour into this new strategy? What does the future look like for them? Potentially being redeveloped. I mean, you have a lot of companies that they need less space today than they did 30 years ago because they have more efficient floor plates. You have people who are working remotely. So for some of these buildings, um, you know, it it might mean breaking up their building, maybe even demolishing part of their building and saying, hey, let's turn this into some sort of uh, apartment complex or a restaurant or some other use because there just isn't a need for as much. And so that uh, you might have more cases of uh, of buildings being um, repurposed for, for new uses. That's commercial real estate reporter Danny Ecker with Crane Chicago Business. You can read more about this story and other reporting from Danny at chicagobusiness.com. Danny, thanks. Thanks, Jen. And that's today's Reset. Hey, do you remember that gorgeous day we had yesterday? 50 degrees, sunny. Well, by tomorrow, it'll be a faded memory with snow expected for our area. So how do you make the best of a bad commute? By listening to the Reset Podcast, of course. So make sure you're subscribed and tell a friend. New episodes drop at 4 p.m. So we're the perfect companion for your ride home or into work. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. And let's talk again soon. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.